No, that's <laughs> Craig Middleton. That is our, our new children and young families minister. Yeah. And, and Craig uh, offered to go ahead and start being a part of the roundtable right away. Uh, Jay wasn't actually supposed to be here tonight. He was planning to go out of town. And, and Jay is recovering from camp, largely. Uh, his, his voice is still quite weak. Uh, but we've also decided... Um, Four of us is probably as many as we need to have on any given Sunday evening. And so more than likely, uh, you're not going to see all five of us up here. We're going to rotate in and out and, and allow uh, different formats of the four of us to do, to do this uh, uh, study together and, and not have all five together. Next week, I'll be out, uh, and so the, the other four ministers will handle it. And then the Sunday after that, Craig's going to be out, so the, the four will handle it. So, um, but we're excited to bring Craig on board. He told us... Uh, a month ago, as he was in the process of getting here, he said, I, I can't wait to get there on July 3rd and stir up some trouble in the roundtable. So we'll see, how, we'll see, see if he accomplishes that tonight. <laughs> if you will, turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. Uh, we are continuing our study of the seven churches, or the seven letters to the seven churches of Asia. And we come now to the third letter. It appears in Revelation chapter 2, uh, and it's the letter to the church in Pergamum. It will begin in verse 12 and run through verse 17. Let's read that as we get started tonight. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna. And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So tonight we turn our attention to the church and to the letter to the church in Pergamum. And the first thing we want to consider right now is if, if there's anything of significance from a background standpoint, particularly as it pertains to this letter that we want to mention. Anything you guys want to bring up about the Pergamum or the letter to the church of Pergamum before we begin? Uh, I researched about uh, Pergamum, and um, let me pull it up. Oh, yeah. Uh, Pergamum was the center of Roman government and pagan religion in the Asia Minor re region. Uh, that's why the book, um, the text called it the Throne of Satan. And uh, it was the city in Asia Minor, the, the first city in Asia Minor, to build a temple to a Roman ruler, actually Augustus, and the capital of the whole area for the cult of the emperor. So it was referred to itself as the temple warden uh, of a temple dedicated to Caesar worship. And Pergamon was also a center of pagan cults of various deities like Asclepius, the Apollo's son, the serpent god of healing, and Athena, Demeter, and Dionysius, uh, also the gods uh, re receiving significant cultic attention there. Uh, so uh, Pergamon was the center of the idolatry at the time. Okay. The first couple of cities that we've looked at in Ephesus and Smyrna, uh, both of them were coastal towns. Uh, Pergamon was or inland, about 15 miles inland from any kind of trade. So it wasn't high on trade, but that doesn't mean it didn't have high significance. Kind of what Mingu's talking about. As far as Roman influence, it, had of the, it was of the utmost uh, importance in that region, in that area of Asia Minor. Um, early on in Roman conquest, uh, they definitely were all in on Rome. And they sided with Rome, and they helped Rome uh, conquer many different regions. And because of that loyalty, they were given an a elevated status. Uh, they were given much favor in the, in the sight of the Roman government and leadership. Um, in fact, they were the, kind of the capital of Rome in Asia. And that title was you know, going back and forth between them and Ephesus. But 
they were in contention for that kind of uh, prestige in Roman culture. Um, but as Mingu was also saying, I, I think that should tell us that Pergamum was as entrenched in Roman culture, Roman society, Roman life as it gets. They were entrenched in the Roman gods, the Roman culture, the, the, the Roman worship, uh, the Roman superiority, and unfortunately, that influence was ever encroaching on the church that was established there. That influence and, and that culture around them was, was encroaching into the Lord's church. As far as the establishment of the church in Pergamum, we don't really know much about it throughout the rest of the New Testament like we have with Ephesus and with some others, but uh, perhaps during Paul's three-year stay in Ephesus, he went to Pergamum. That's what some of the scholars uh, tend to think, that during that three-year stay in Ephesus, Paul traveled up north and went to Pergamum and, and did some work there, but we don't know specifically on that, but that's really all I had on the background of Pergamum itself. All right. If, uh, if Satan could say to a city, you are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that can't be hidden, then he would say it probably to the city of Pergamum. It sat atop a cone-shaped hill, and its satanic glory was on display for all of the world. And we'll get more of that in a minute. All right. So that gives us some background here on Pergamum. I don't have anything to add to what these guys have said already. But one thing that's interesting about every letter that's written to the churches here in the first two chapters, in chapter two and three, is that there's always a description of the author in it, a description of Jesus. And in this case, you'll notice that description in verse eight, uh, sorry, sorry, in verse um, 12. The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, the immediate uh, callback is to chapter 1, where we have this vision of Jesus. I think it's verse 16 in chapter 1, where Jesus, in this description uh, of what John is seeing, we're told that in his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. So we have a callback to chapter 1, but when you think about this description, what comes to mind? What, 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 what do you think... Um, Jesus is trying to convey to this congregation by appealing to the sharp two-edged sword coming out of his mouth rather than some of the other uh, parts of the vision in chapter 1. Well, John, he paints the picture of an incredibly large mob, incredibly large mob. And he writes that Judas, with a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, go to the garden with lanterns and torches and weapons and they then say, we seek Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus responds with an innocent enough statement. He says, I am he. But that three-word declarative statement does something incredible to that incredibly large mob. They draw back and they fall to the ground. And the picture is that of tens, perhaps hundreds of men cowering in fear before the word of the Lord. Just three words sends them all to their knees. And so we now know why his words from that point all the way into his death on the cross, why his words were, were carefully chosen and few. Because if a bold, confident, yet meek and restrained I am he can do that, well, what kind of damage and destruction might his mighty words do if they are uttered in carelessly in pain or in anger or vengeance? somewhere between Gethsemane and Calvary. I am he, that's just a tiny drop in the ocean of the power and authority of the words of Jesus. And so make no mistake, as Kyle mentioned, the sharp two-edged sword of verse 12, it most definitely comes from his mouth. We see that in verse 16, if you drop down. So when I see at the beginning of this section that these words come from the same one who said, I am he, I then know I better shut up, listen up, and do what he says. Guys, what do y'all think? <laughs> yeah, there's a couple of things going on perhaps there. I think with each letter thus far, uh, there has been some sort of tie-in to Roman culture and Roman society where he says, you know, you got this going on in your society. Well, let me tell you what, I'm the actual thing going on. So in the, in the letter to Ephesus, he, he talks about have, being the one that, that holds the stars in his hands. And we talked in that lesson about how perhaps that's, 
talking about Domitian having the coin that had his son picturing holding the stars in his hands. And Jesus says, no, 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 I'm, I'm the one doing that. And last week, we, or a couple weeks ago, we talked about Smyrna, how it was a dead city and then it came to life through trade. And he says, I'm the one who was dead and came to life. Well, if we were going to look for um, a context of Jesus talking about Roman culture and trying to make a, re- a relationship and a parallel to that, I think there is one to be made. Um, when you look at Pergamum, and when you look at, you know, as you were talking about Pergamum being this key city in Roman culture, uh, Rome was, was very proud of their conquest. They were very proud of the fact that they had, had conquered m- many regions of the world, and for him to call himself a double-edged sword, uh, I think there is a relationship to be made to what Rome did throughout the region, going region to region, conquering people by the sword. By the sword. And on many of their different artifacts that you can look back and look at history and look at Roman history, they were very proud and they depicted many things with the image of a double-edged sword. On many of their currency, on many of their different paintings, and whatever the case might be, the the double-edged sword was on a lot of their uh, different things in that culture. And so this thought of of Rome being this bearer of the sword was throughout the culture of that time. And in fact, Rome had this, uh, not manifest destiny, but they had this thing that they believed they could execute capital punishment on whomever they deemed necessary. Because they were Rome, and that's it. I'm Rome, and you're just going to be okay with this because I'm Rome. And so whoever they deem necessary to kill and to, and to murder and whatever the case might be, they did it. So I think what Jesus is saying is, who holds the ultimate authority? Who is the ultimate bearer of justice? Who is the ultimate person with the sword well, I think there's a connection to be made to that being Jesus. Um, I think there's a definite tie into that. But that might be uh, something scholars might think up. Maybe Jesus didn't have that intention when he was talking. I think maybe if we were to look at the Scripture, uh, Jesus is referred to in John chapter 1 as the Word. John chapter 1, the Word became flesh, dwelt among us. Jesus in John chapter 1, verse 14, is referred to as the Word. And as we know, the Word is also referred to as the sword of the Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 17, the sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. And as we know, we continue down this path, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 calls the Word of God sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the joints and marrow as a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So as Jesus, maybe there is a biblical tie-in to what Jesus is saying here. I am the Word, the sword of the Spirit. And the same way that Word discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart, I can. I'm Jesus. Since I am the Word, I am discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. And just like Craig was saying, either one of those explanations, whether it be a Roman context or a biblical one, I think is telling them to better listen up. Yeah. And, and everything you just said is everything I was thinking, too. One thing I'll throw out there, uh, a great, uh, to the Roman context one, think about Romans chapter 13, uh, where, where Paul gives instructions about obeying government. And in particular, Romans chapter 13 and verse uh, 4, he refers to uh, um, government officials as God's servants for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. The sword symbolized that justice that could be meted out by any Roman uh, official that Ben was talking about. And remember, uh, at the very start of this, Mingu was telling us about how uh, Pergamum was the center of Roman government in this uh, territory, in this uh, region, in this province. And so the Roman governor of Asia would be housed in Pergamum. And we just read a moment ago how one of the members of the Pergamum congregation was killed for his faith. Antipas was a martyr in Pergamum. And so we have this context where there's reason for the Christians in Pergamum to be afraid of Roman rule because they've witnessed one of their own, a brother in the congregation, executed because of his faith. 
And so they have a, a unique fear of Rome in that, along that line. And Jesus could, as Ben is pointing out, be saying, who's got the real authority? Who do you really need to fear? It's, it's, not, it's not Rome. It's, it's me. I, I am the one who will have the final say. That, that sort of context. And everything you said about the biblical context was in my notes. So we'll just uh, move on from there. Mingu, do you have anything to add? I mean, just a uh, brief edict to what you said is that the double-edged sword. So probably the uh, people were expecting Jesus to be the sword that judges evil world. But Jesus is pointing here probably by using the double-edged sword that the, word, I mean, the sword can be used inside the church too. So that's what this letter is talking about. Mm -hmm. Great point. Well, the one thing that really stands out to me in this particular letter is the reference in uh, verse 13 of something that Jesus knows about this congregation. He knows where they dwell. And then he defines that as where Satan's throne is. That's such a specific statement. You dwell where Satan's throne is. What might that be a reference to? That's, let's talk about that for a minute. What, what might be the reason Jesus said Pergamum is the location of Satan's throne? I always thought it was Tuscaloosa, but that's just me. <laughs> why, why do you think uh, Pergamum is referred to as the, the place of Satan's throne? You know, I know in Arkansas they don't do much teaching on grammar or or vocabulary, but it's Satan, not Satan. Um, just saying that. Um, when we look at verse 13, we're talking about Satan. And when we think about Satan's throne, um, I think what we've talked about a little bit thus far, about Pergamum thus far, uh, is, is accurate. They, they were the hub of Roman society and culture of that time. And so what I think Mingu was talking about uh, they had a temple to Augustus, Emperor Augustus. That, that temple was still there. The, the, there were still people coming to worship at that temple. Um, there was much worship going on with pagan gods such as Zeus. Uh, in fact, I was doing some research on uh, what, how, how they worshipped Zeus, who is the Greek god, the god that's kind of the head god in Greek mythology. Uh, they, they had a throne to Zeus that was 120 feet by 112 feet that stood on an 18-foot tall podium that people would come and worship in Pergamum that they called Zeus the Savior. That was the title of this sculpture. And around it was many serpents intertwined all around Zeus. And so 120,000, 200,000, that's kind of the population of Pergamum that scholars think they would come and they would come to this altar of Zeus and co-worship with all the serpents and with all the Greek mythology, with all the pagan paganism and with all the emperor worship going on. I think this throne of Satan, I think Jesus is saying this is the hub of idolatry. You reside in the hub of idolatry. Jesus obviously connects Rome and Roman culture and Roman life with the works and the wickedness and the darkness of Satan himself. That Satan had, had as, just as Rome had conquered many of, much of the world, I believe Jesus looked at, and the church looked at Rome, as the one Satan had conquered. Satan had conquered Rome in everything and every way, and that's why I think Jesus said that's where Satan's throne is. Plus that... Um because Pergamum is the center of that uh, Roman, you know, uh, government system, probably that city would have been very developed, very much developed and prosperous and wealthy, and a lot of materials and a lot of new cultures and, uh, you know, everything could be there. And it's like, you know, New York in the United States and Seoul in Korea, you know, we can find anything, everything uh, in that area. And that could attract people, you know, from the truth. So that, you know, that could be also uh, referred to 
as something that, you know, uh, the center, I mean, the Satan's throne. Yeah, multiple scholars, multiple scholars uh, believe that the beginning of Caesar cult worship took place at Pergamum. That was the inauguration, the first city, the first locale after the death of, I believe, Julius. And so uh, that would be perhaps another reason. There's lots of ideas, but there's another. You know, I also think about the fact that um, this was a city that was highly intellectual, actually. Uh, this uh, city boasted one of the most famous libraries in the world at the time with over 200,000 volumes. That may not sound like much to us, but back then it was a big deal. In fact, Pergamum is the city where the use of parchment began because Egypt refused to send them papyrus, so they had to come up with some other substance to start writing on. So they started the process of using parchment. And they also had the second largest Asclepion in the world. Mingu alluded to the fact that they had this place that worshipped Asclepius, who was the god of healing. And Asclepion was a, a temple dedicated to the god of healing. And, and, and Asclepion just didn't fu function not only as a place where you worship, but a place where medicine was practiced, a place where medicine was taught. And so you, you have this center as well of intelligence with this massive library for the standards of the day and this massive... Um, hospital for a contemporary comparison as well and, and for some reason where, wherever um, you have higher education you have a tendency to try to outthink God you have a tendency to replace God with intellect and I'm not trying to disparage higher education I'm just saying that has a tendency to lend itself to that and that could have been one avenue in which Satan used to um, combat Christianity in this particular environment, that could have been a reason why it was also uh, part of his throne. There's also tremendous religious pluralism going on here. We, uh, Mingu read off a list of different temples, Ben's mentioned some of them too, different deities that are worshipped there. They even worshipped uh, Egyptian de deities. There is a basilica that's been found there called the Red Basilica. Before it became a Christian basilica, it was previously an Egyptian house of worship for Egyptian deities. So they didn't just worship Roman deities or Greek deities. They worshipped uh, Egyptian deities there too. This place is filled with all different types of religions. Maybe that's even a reason it could be called the place where Satan's throne is. And here's what's interesting to me, guys. When, Paul, when Jesus refers to this as the place where Satan's throne is, that they dwell where Satan's throne is, I wonder if he wouldn't say the same of us today. If, if, if that categorically couldn't be the Buford Church of Christ or the Church of Christ in America in general. Because we've made comparisons to New York City or Tuscaloosa or, or other American ideals, I should say. Higher education, uh, wealthy culture, um, political power um, and uh, uh, religious pluralism. Don't all those things exist in the very culture in which we reside right now? Could it not be that, that we, like the church in Pergamum, are, are dwelling in a place where Satan's throne is? I think, there's, I think there's a lot of useful comparison and consideration to be made between the culture in which we, we survive as, a, a, as Christians and as a church and the culture in which Pergamum survives. So any, any thoughts on that? Any thoughts y'all want to share on, on, on how contextually the idea that this is the place where Satan's throne, where Satan's throne is and, and how it applies to us today? Well, I mean, I like to just, I like to run with the Satan idea because, so this is the one whose eyes are like a flame of fire and in a span of 16 verses, in three different locations, Jesus acknowledges the work, the teaching, and the influence of Satan. And you can take a look for it yourself. It's Smyrna, Pergamum, and then Thyatira down there at the end of chapter 2. Um, 16 verses, three mentions. And I, I was wondering, I wanted to ask you all just to think about, in the span of 16 years in your lives... Have you acknowledged the work of Satan at least three times? That's something we don't do very often. Uh, a line from cinematic fame says something along the lines of that the greatest trick the devil ever, ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. And I wonder if by our failure to mention his name like Jesus does over and over again, if we are in a way imagining he doesn't exist. Um, 
Kelsey and, and myself, we were at a low point in our marriage about eight years ago, and uh, by the grace of God, uh, things, got, things turned around, but there was a lot of conflict and pain and anger and sin, to be honest. But one of the things I remember very poignantly that changed things is that we started to acknowledge the work of the devil, the work of Satan, against our marriage. And we started to verbally say out loud that he's trying to rip us apart. The devil's do, trying to do all he can to rip this marriage apart. We would say that over and over again. And it's amazing what happened because all of a sudden, wouldn't you know it, Kelsey no longer was seen by me as my enemy. And she no longer saw me as her enemy. It flipped the script entirely. All of a sudden, we were on the same team. Marriages, listen, we were on the same team. We were on the same team fighting against a common foe. And we need to call out that common foe, and Jesus does it. And so it's good that we are acknowledging that the possibility that we may live in Satan's throne right now. Because he's active and working. He's not retired. Not by a long shot. One thing I add, I want to add to that is that, you know, when I was moving to Atlanta, Georgia, from Oxford, Mississippi, there was a brother who literally prayed that I would not lose my faith at Atlanta because it is like something, somewhere like Pergamum, you know, to him. I think uh, this, this, for, this, this idea of, is the Buford Church of Christ uh, seated at Satan's throne? I think ultimately, wherever you are, uh, whatever time you existed uh, after Christ and, and into uh, the first, second, third, we're all the way to the 21st century uh, today, the church should be looked at as foreigners. Ultimately, I think that's what it is, is the church should be looked at as foreigners in a world surrounding them that has has dom- has dominion the world around them has dominion but the church stands firm on the rock Jesus Christ the foundation and so I think ultimately yes the beautiful church of Christ is seated among darkness around us we would be blind to act like it wasn't I do think it's it's important for us to understand that Just how bad Rome was, though. I'm not trying to belittle America and, and some of the flaws that we have as a nation, but I've never walked down the street and seen Christians burning as lampstands in the street. I've never walked down the street and, and seen people uh, put in a, uh, uh, just for their faith, their faith. I've never seen people put into an arena and just made to fight uh, tigers and, 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 and lions for their faith. Um, this idea about Rome understanding that they are the seat of, the, of Satan's throne. I think it's important for us to realize that uh, Rome was just that bad. And for us to compare ourselves to Rome and to act as if we are just as evil as them, I think that I think I, I I don't think that if you've done enough study in Roman history, that that is accurate. But I'm not trying to say that we aren't in darkness and we aren't surrounded by darkness around us. Because let me tell you what, we are surrounded in it. And as Craig was talking about, I think what he's trying to get at is um, the darkness that we are surrounded by just might not be as in your face as it was in Rome. It might be secret darkness going behind the scenes, under the radar, going unseen, going just as dark and just as evil, but not as called out and ex- as exposed as it was in Roman culture. And as Craig's saying, if the church doesn't call that evil out and that darkness out, then it'll go by un- 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 untouched, unseen, um, and that's the church's job. And certainly we don't experience the same physical persecution that, that Rome in, in, 
implemented in their day, nor are we experiencing the same uh, physical persecution that, say, they are experiencing in India today or other places around the globe. The ultimate point is this. Satan is still the prince of the power of the air. Satan is still the ruler of this world. Satan is still in power. And in this world, in this environment, he does still have a throne to uh, operate from. That's what we're trying to acknowledge tonight. So let's not forget that that Satan is still operating, uh, but he doesn't get the last word. That belongs um, to the one who has the sharp double-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That being said, let's consider what Pergamum is praised for. Most of the churches that are written to in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation are praised. Some are not. But it is interesting. Pergamum does get praised here in verse 13. Uh, and, and if you pay attention to it, he says, uh, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. So what is Pergamum getting praised for here? And what do you find significant about that? They hold fast Jesus' name, but that doesn't uh, automatically mean that they did, I mean, or lived uh, as they had to live. So we'll talk about that uh, soon. But, uh, you know, holding to faith is not complete, it's not the you know only thing that we uh, we should have, but uh, holding faith is the basic bottom or the elementary thing. Plus that we have to have a lot of things more. Sorry, that. I just got a massive cramp in my leg. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, it ain't going away. Hold on. <laughs> I'm sorry, Mingu. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. <laughs> oh. You sit on Satan's throne. That's right. Came back and got him. Whoa! Oh, uh, I was surprised that you know yeah. I made him have that. I think I'm I was, sorry. I, I was pretty surprised too. Okay, <laughs> sorry to interrupt you. Okay, okay, I'm finished. All right, Pergamum, everyone, Pergamum. All right, so Pergamum. When we when we look at this question you've asked um, of about their works, this idea of holding fast, holding fast, uh, holding on to his name, holding fast to his name. They're on Satan's throne. They are being persecuted. They are being influenced by all these terrible influences in the world. And this idea of holding on. And just for me, when I, when I think of holding on, I don't think of a church or a congregation that is on the offense. I think of a church that is taking blows taking punches to the face, and they're getting pushed back a little bit. They're holding on uh, to that faith that they have instead of pushing forth. And we're going to see that going on in the text coming up, uh, just exactly how the different blows and the different false teachings and different influences that were taking over, taking hold on them. And I think that's the difference in uh, Ephesus and this church we're talking about tonight, Ephesus was a person who, or was a congregation who didn't just take blows, they refused to take a step back in their faith and in their knowledge of God's Word or in their willingness to, to preach God's Word and to, and to stand for the truth. I think Pergamon was a church, uh, my, my headliner of this congregation in the New King James has different head, headings and different scriptures, passages, Mine says the compromising church. They, they compromised slowly but surely to the world around them, the influences that were around them. And, and Jesus acknowledges, listen, I understand that you are seated on Satan's throne. You are surrounded by the worst influences possible. But never once does Jesus say, so I'm just going to overlook this compromising that you're doing in your faith and in, in, in the church and all these different false teachings going on. I think this idea of holding on is great. It is great that they have not fully let go. Because as, as long as you're holding on, if you're a boxer holding on to those ropes, you still have a, you have a puncher's chance, right? You have a chance to make it through the fight. And so I think Jesus is commending them for holding on. They're, they're holding on to that rope for dear life. But at the same time, he's challenging them and saying, 
You have every reason to win this battle. You have every reason to win this fight. Get off the rope and start really fighting for them. Yeah, and I just, you know, five, five of the letters, the direct words of Jesus, they start out the same. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. I know your works. But this one's different. Um, I know where you dwell. And to Jesus, understanding where they are, knowing it fully, provided a context for him to praise them. I know where you dwell, he says, you, in the home of abusive parents. I know where you dwell, he says to you, in a house with an unloving, disrespectful spouse. I know where you dwell in a job that's filled with profanity and sexual immorality is praised. And I just think that's just so interesting because we are so blind so often, we are so quick to judge. Um, that single mom that comes into the doors five minutes late again. I know your works. You're late every single week. But do we know where she dwells? And maybe that would frame the rest of the verse 13 we would share with her. And so I think that's really cool how Jesus shares that. And it gives them something to praise this church. Well, we've referenced this, this praise that appears in verse 13, but then it takes a turn, as, as Mingu and Ben have both alluded to. There, in uh, verse 14 and 15, Jesus changes tones, and he says, but I have a few things against you. And it's very interesting because he makes a significant Old Testament reference here, a reference to Balaam. He says that, that you have some there who hold the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. When you hear this reference, to what do you think uh, they're being criticized for? What, what is it that Jesus is saying they are doing wrong? I think I, I kind of jumped ahead in my last uh, thing I said about compromising. I think that's what's happening here. This church had compromised to the point that they were allowing false teaching, they were allowing a certain lifestyle to enter into the church that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. I think Jesus is trying to put that message across with this, uh, these Balaamites, these people that are going after the doctrine of Balaam or the Nicolaitans in verse 15. If you look at uh, the church in Ephesus, verse 6 of chapter 2, he says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he, he praises the church in Ephesus for, they, for, for them putting away the Nicolaitans, but he condemns the church in Pergamum for accepting the Nicolaitans. And if, in fact, Pergamum was established or, or planted by Paul uh, in his time in Ephesus, I think it's uh, interesting. Paul was the one who said in 2 Timothy chapter 4, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. Uh, and I think this is what's happening in Pergamum. The time came that they no longer were able to endure, able to take, able to hold fast and stand up with sound doctrine. And they have allowed this doctrine of Balaam and the Nicolaitans to come in. And regardless of what exactly is happening, whether it's uh, sexual immorality with the Balaamites or whatever the Nicolaitans were, were, were teaching and preaching, whether it's Gnosticism or whatever that was, due to what you study on those things. The fact is, they let false teaching and heresy creep into the church and take hold and take root and overthrow the truth. And that's what they're being condemned for. They have compromised to the point that they are no longer resembling the church they once resembled. They were this beacon of truth in this light, in this dark throne of Satan place. And now they got it. They, they, they're getting darker and darker. They're getting more influenced and more influenced. They're letting this false teaching take hold. For whatever reason, they're, they're, they're faltering. Like I said, they're on the ropes about to fall down. And Jesus is saying, he's reminding them, they can't compromise the truth. The, the facts are, Circumstance should 
never dictate the truth. The truth should dictate the circumstance. And when you think about this church and this congregation in Pergamum, their circumstance was, was hard. But it never should have changed the truth, and it did. I wonder how they've taken your lesson this morning. Some of them there, right? On freedom. They'd have heard, they'd have heard the message on freedom a lot differently than I hope you heard it. Uh, as a license to sin and do whatever. Uh, it's interesting. Did you, catch, did you catch how many there hold to the teaching? How many hold to the teaching of Balaam? How many hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans? How many there? I, my Bible, I hope the translation is not inaccurate. It says some. Some. Not the whole church, some. Another question. But who does Jesus have a problem with, if I can use those words? Against whom does Jesus have these words? In verse 14, but I have a few things against you. If I can use Tuscaloosa language, that's y'all. That's you all. I got a problem with y'all that some hold to this teaching. I want you just to ponder and consider that. That what a small select minority are like and what they believe in a congregation, there is a sense in which the whole community has a responsibility. And that was one of the things that stood out to me. Oh, as I studied this, um, I looked at uh, you know, numbers uh, uh, in which the you know, Balaam's story is written. But I didn't find anything that uh, Balaam did wrong very obviously. So I tried to find out why Jesus is uh, applying this example to Pergamum, this congregation. And, and like Ben pointed out, I mean, Ben's uh, translation points out that it is like compromising church. I think Balaam, what Balaam did, uh, what did wrong was compromising. Uh, you know, what, what he did uh, wrong, well, firstly, I think, he went to Balak, even though he knew that Balak invited him to curse God's people, but he, he had to refuse it, you know? As, his, as God's uh, prophet, he had to refuse it, because the he knew the intention, evil intention of Bela, but he didn't refuse it. But anyway, he went there and he didn't say that, uh, he, he didn't say what was wrong to the people of Israel. But as I read the uh, you know, numbers very carefully, he taught Bela what to do to get any favor from God, build seven altars and sacrifice a bull and a ram on each. And so Balak did. So God told ba Balaam some words, even though the words were for Israel. I mean, God's people, not for Balak. But anyway, God did something in request of that sacrifice. I mean, the, the Balak and Balaam. So that was a uh, pretty significant scene of Balaam, I think. And later, you know, uh, the, the text didn't make exact connection with that instant and uh, with the following instance. But in the uh, later instance, in chapter 23, 24, you know, some people brought in Moab Moabite women and have some relationship with them. And also, they started the worshiping uh, some Moabites, you know, idols in Israel. So what Balaam did, even though he said that, you know, I will not say anything but what God told me to say, and actually he did. But what Balaam did invited the bad things, idolatry and also the sexual immorality in Israel. So like Ben, uh, one time said uh, a while ago that it is kind of a, a, you know leaven and and I can I can see that see it as like butterfly effect 
It is a small thing at first, but it, be, it, it makes a huge typhoon or tornado, especially when it is uh, done by a leader like the prophet Balaam, leader of the church. It can devastate the church, the whole congregation. You know, so as a leader, or the leader or the teacher or preacher or minister in the church, uh, we have to be very careful of what we are doing. If someone vulnerable see us, we are doing it, and if he or she thinks that it is okay to do that in the church, then we can be like Pergamum eventually. All right. So that brings us, we're, we need, we're here to wrap this up now, and, and I want to ask, what's your one big takeaway uh, from the study of this letter to the church at Pergamum? Uh, I'd, just, I'd emphasize the word in verse 16, soon. Uh, I'm going to come to you soon with the sword in my mouth if they don't repent. And uh, listen, we all, we, we got loved ones, I think you probably do, but you're concerned they're wandering away from the faith. Uh, you see uh, a house that's just the warning signs, and I hope that word soon will give you a sense of urgency. Do something immediately. Uh, don't, don't have the regret of, I wish I'd have said something earlier. And so, to me, a community's responsibility to respond to the sin of some, to the conflict, the issues that some have soon, stands out to me. I think when we, like we were talking about compromise, we are talking about a little leaven, leavening the whole lump. I think it's up to every one of us, out of love, compassion, to hold each other accountable. To hold every one of us accountable to the standard that God's Word presents. Because the church in Pergamon was not doing that. I don't know if, if it was a message of love and grace, let's just make everybody happy like we kind of see today. Or, or what the case was, but it wasn't acceptable in Jesus' sight. That's what I do know. And when we see Jesus commend the church in Ephesus for holding fast and being intolerant to false teaching and false doctrine, we see the very opposite of what he says to the church in Pergamum because they were tolerant. They did tolerate sin. And they, were, they, they let it mar the reputation of the Lord's church. And so to that, tonight, as we look to ourselves as the Buford Church of Christ, I'm just asking all of us to ask ourselves, am I the leaven? Am, am, am I part of the problem? Or am I part of the group of people accepting that problem? Or am I trying to hold fast, pursue the truth, at all cost. Because at the end of the day, just as Craig was saying, Jesus says, repent. Or else I will come to you quickly. I will fight against you with my sword of my mouth. That's not a fight I want. Uh, when I um, looked at myself as I studied this text, you know, I think I have to be very careful not to compromise. And I will try to uh, find out the areas that I, I may be compromising myself uh, with the truth. Um, and, you know, we have to be very, I mean, then also think, thought that we have to be very careful about this thing. As we uh, live in a metropolitan area, we uh, easily can get caught in these thoughts like everybody does, you know, cultural idea. It's better than the worst. I'm doing, uh, I'm doing better than worst. It's like, you know, relativist, relativistic idea. And also, don't judge me, I'm not judging you, kind of thing, postmodern, uh, uh, postmodernistic idea. So that is very prevalent uh, around us. So we have to be very careful not to compromise the truth. 
For me, uh, Ben kind of hit on it and uh, used the term that, that I was really thinking on, and that is don't confuse love with tolerance. They are not one and the same thing. And, and I think that's the problem in Pergamum. While, while Ephesus, is, as Ben was saying, uh, they, they, um, they're criticized for emphasizing truth to the exclusion of love. I think Pergamum's being criticized for emphasizing love to the exclusion of truth, and you have to have both. And, um, you know, Paul instructed us to speak the truth in love, not to um, be silent on truth because of love. So do not confuse love with tolerance because it's the tolerance of sin that Jesus says is going to lead to him warring against us. And as Ben just said, I don't want to be on that side of the fight. So uh, that's my big takeaway. I hope our study of this letter to the Church of Pergamum has been a blessing to you. Um, And if it has has caused you to to think about your own relationship with the Lord, if it's caused you to think about whether or not um, you've compromised or or you've tolerated sin or you're uh, uh, not not fulfilling your responsibility, um, then we encourage you to to reach out to one of the ministers or one of the elders and and let us know how, how we can help you. And if you, you come to the decision that you, you need to become a child of God, we, we want to assist with that as well. Um, we do not offer the, the invitation to have you come forward, but we invite you to seek one of us out in person or in other forms of communication, and, and we'd love to be of assistance to you. Let us close out our time of study with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for another evening to study your word, and we're, we're grateful that we can uh, engage in an examination of these letters pinned by your son to, to churches that, that are not that unlike us. And Lord, help us, help us um, to not compromise. Help us to, to not tolerate sin. Help us to not be like the church in Pergamum in the way that you criticize them. Help us, Lord, as individual Christians and as a congregation. Help us to stand for what's true. Help us to be uncompromising on the truth. And Lord, help us, help us to be unafraid of being strange and different in a world that is constantly distancing itself from you. Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus and for the sacrifice he made so that our sins can be forgiven. And may we represent him as well as we can as we go through this life. It is through his name that we offer this prayer. Amen.